Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. It's September 4th, 2018, and this is episode four. Eat your own dog food. Today on Parallel, we're going to talk about running a software company, transparency, community, all the things that make a company an organization that you might want to do business with and become a customer of. And I have two great guests to talk with me about that today. They are Sean Tibbetts, CEO and co-founder of CyberTimes, and Paul Kafasis, CEO and co-founder of Rogue Amoeba. And rather than try and tell you what they do, I'm going to give them the chance to introduce themselves a little bit and, and tell you about the companies that they run. Paul, let's start with you. I think a lot of people who use the Macintosh are very much familiar with Rogue Amoeba and its products like Audio Hijack, which I'm using right this moment. But uh, but tell me a little bit about yourself and about Rogue Amoeba. Uh, sure. So that's I, I hope people are familiar with us. That's always good to hear if they are. But uh, Rogue Amoeba is an audio software company. We've been making audio utilities for the Mac for almost 16 years now. We just uh, had our 15th anniversary last year and we're coming up on year number 16 now. So just about as long as OS 10 has been around, we've been making audio tools. So you mentioned Audio Hijack. That's our probably our best-known product. It's a tool for recording any audio on your Mac, whether it's microphone audio, Skype audio, uh, audio from a web browser, things like that. And then we've got a whole bunch of other tools, a uh, half dozen other audio tools for editing audio, uh, routing audio around your computer, uh, some, some more advanced uses of audio as well. But uh, basically, consumer to pro-level audio tools that are designed to make doing things with audio easier on your Mac. And Sean, tell us about CyberTimes and a little bit. You have a, an extensive background as an IT person, a radio guy. You've done, you've done all sorts of things, but now you're, you're running CyberTimes. So tell us a little bit about that. That's great. Well, thanks, Shelly. I appreciate you having me on the show this evening. Uh, it's, I really look forward to the opportunity to discuss all the, the cool tech stuff we're doing at CyberTimes. Um, I'm Sean Tibbetts. I'm the CEO and co-founder of CyberTimes. I've got several other founders of 20 years long friendship that all joined me in this adventure about four years ago, three and a half years ago. Uh, I do have a, about a 30 year IT career. I've been doing this for a very long time. I started on a dial up help desk back in the 90s to date myself. Uh, I've done basically every chair. I've been a DBA, a network administrator, a developer, and uh, all the way up to IT director and CIO. But I have to tell you, I love what I do now. What we do here at CyberTimes is we develop an application called Cyber Eyes. It's a smart glasses augmented reality application for people who are low vision and blind. And so using that device and, and software, we're able to help people to magnify things, to be able to read on their own, to watch TV, watch their kids play sporting events. Then we have a lot of technology packed into these devices with OCR that they can snap a picture of text and the glasses will read it back to them. We have object recognition, color identification, mood ring mode is one of everybody's favorites <laughs> that you can take a picture of somebody that tells you if they're happy, sad, angry, surprised. Um, and then on top of all that, we, we integrated Amazon Alexa recently into our smart glasses as well as Skype. So now we have real-time video chat available for people who are visually impaired, which is an amazing tool uh, just to, to real quick get answers from family and friends on, hey, is this a can of mushrooms or peas? Or, hey, which way do I turn here, left, right, that kind of thing. Skype's been a, a great addition for our software platform. So, yeah, we're very excited and, and love what we do. So both of you guys are doing cool and interesting products that I think for the people that use them are, are probably pretty important in their lives. But in, in another way, it's kind of a niche. It's a very specific thing that you're doing. So I guess I wonder from both of you why you're doing what you're doing. Why specifically, say, Mac Audio for you, Paul, or Sean for glasses and software that help blind and low vision folks? So Sean, why don't you start us off? 
Sure. So for me, uh, the God's honest truth was I was completely bored and burnt out with IT. <laughs> it really was. Uh, I had had enough. I had walked away to the point that I actually opened up a food truck and launched the Bluegrass Food Truck Association and built a food truck industry in the state of Kentucky. I mean, as far away from IT as you could possibly get. And uh, I was actually wearing Google Glass at a Jimmy Buffett concert, and a friend of mine asked if she could try them on. She puts them on. After a couple of minutes, she starts crying, and I said, yo, what is the matter? Did it burn you? Did it pinch you? What happened? She says, no, you don't get it. It's got a camera in the front and a speaker in my ear. It can tell me what I'm looking at. And it turns out she had a, an eye disorder called retinitis pigmentosa, and it hits people usually in their 30s, and you, you go completely blind in a matter of just a few years. And um, so I started you know, focusing on that, and wearable technology is really a, a cutting and bleeding edge kind of thing. And as I started digging into the low vision and accessible technology space, what I found as a technologist is that this space is way out front on the bleeding edge of technology all the time from even the one of the most basic things in the visually impaired community is OCR, OCR, optical character recognition. It was invented in 1972 for the blind community, but enterprise didn't pick up on it until the late 80s. Um, and I feel that wearable tech and being able to do contextually aware augmented reality machine learning type based software using the latest and greatest real time edge computing solutions are focused in the accessible technology space first. And as a technologist of 30 years who got completely bored with making rich guys richer, I'm just thrilled to be doing something that actually excites me and is way out front. I did not expect the Jimmy Buffett food truck connection when I asked that question. I, <laughs> I totally know, right? did not, but that's impressive. <laughs> so you know, the Google Glass is interesting because I, as somebody who's visually impaired myself, when I heard about Google Glass, I half of me was like, oh, I have to try that. And the other part of me was like, I, that's never going to work for me. So, And I, and then that's true with you know, low vision people in general. The, the, the different kinds of visual acuity people have are, are, are so varied that it's mm – -hmm. It, it does seem, I mean, is that is that your experience that people either really take to it and can see? What, I guess, well, it's not fair because your product is a lot more beyond flat, basic Google Glass. But I guess, I mean, that's that's interesting to me that different kinds of vision respond very differently to technology like that. Sure. Well, and it's one of the other things that, that actually keeps my chief technology officer excited now is that we're, we're supporting multiple hardware platforms as of July. Um, so, you know, now we're actually building not only for the, the Vuzik smart glasses that we've been working with for a couple of years but also the Samsung Gear VR, and then there's a couple other hardware platforms we have on the horizon that, that's keeping them very busy. Um, so what we really look at, what we saw from the business side of things, was around 80% of our lost leads uh, had cited screen size as being the issue. So in, in our market, you know, there's about 7 million people who are considered totally blind with no color, no light sensitivity, but then there's 47 million people who are considered low vision. And so if you're losing 80% of your leads in the largest part of your market, you better find a solution and you better find it fast. Sure. So we got to looking at other solutions that were available. We found the Samsung Gear virtual reality headset is a great solution. And now we, I, you know, as a CEO, I'm glad to report I have yet to lose another lead <laughs> due to screen size. So. That's, that's, well, that is, I've had those things on my head. They, they certainly have a big screen. So. Yeah. So, yeah. so, Paul, tell me about Mac Audio. Why is that where you're working? I wish I had as good an answer as Sean. Uh, <laughs> it's really something that I and, and the folks at the company fell into. We had been doing, so about 1999, circa 1999, we'd, we'd been working on MP3s and MP3 players on the Mac, back on Mac OS 9, Mac OS 8 even. 
and MP3s were, you know, just sort of starting to come out and, and people were just starting to experiment with them. And uh, this is when Winamp and Macamp were pretty much the only MP3 players out there. And we were working on those and we did some other things with audio and uh, sort of fooled around with various uh, ancillary products and eventually made a product called Audio Hijack, which is still around today, but a, a tool to uh, enhance audio from something like RealPlayer, which nobody uses anymore, but uh, to uh, add an EQ to DVD player, which again, nobody uses anymore. But the the basis of this was just sort of fooling around with audio and we hit on something that we realized, hey, people are actually using this and people are recording audio. And then from there, uh, I'd say mm, probably about, so that, that's about 2002 when we started the company and then about three, four years later is when podcasting just started to sort of be born. And people said, hey, I need to record from Skype. Can you help me with that? You know, you guys can record from any application. How can I record both halves of a Skype conversation so that uh, the person I'm talking to doesn't need to do anything? And we sort of updated Audio Hijack to handle that. And since then, we've sort of focused a lot on the podcasting space in addition to all sorts of other audio uses. But Again, it was really a whole lot of whole lot of dumb luck and a whole lot of just messing around with different things. It was not something where people always assume that we're all very musically inclined or uh, audio engineers, things like that. And uh, we certainly have a lot of experience with that now, but it's not anything that sort of led us there. It's just sort of what we fell into. And what you're really doing is routing audio around more so for, well, not, not more for users than, but I mean, you have products that are for users as well, like Airfoil and, and, and some of the tools where you could send audio to different places even before AirPlay existed. Did AirPlay kind of take some of the wind out of your sails or is there still a need for what you guys do in terms of routing audio for consumption? So Airfoil was for about four or five years was our most popular product, even more so than Audio Hijack. And that's a tool for just streaming audio around your house. So if you have an Apple TV, if you have a HomePod, if you have uh, Sonos devices, Bluetooth devices, Chromecast, everything. Uh, and that's something that very early on in about 2004, 2005, when AirTunes, which was the initial incarnation of AirPlay came out, uh, it only worked with iTunes. So it was a way to get your iTunes music store purchased music uh, to a stereo. And people said, hey, I want to play Pandora to my stereo. I want to play, you know, all sorts of web-based audio and, and app-based audio eventually like Spotify. And so that was something where on the Mac side, there was no other way to do it. And we made a tool called Airfoil that let you send that audio. And yeah, over time, the OS added some of that in. And actually, I think a lot of the uh, playback has moved to mobile. So a lot of people are using their phones for audio playback and then connecting to uh, an AirPlay network around their house. But Airfoil still has a whole lot of different uses for people that have a mixed network. If they've got Chromecasts alongside of an Apple TV and they want to play to multiple devices, or uh, if they've got you know uh, just any sort of mixture of devices that is not solely AirPlay, it works. Also, if you want to play other audio from your Mac and not play all of your audio from your Mac, it uh, it'll help you do it. Uh, I'm rambling about Airfoil, but it's a it's a tool that uh, you know we made it for consumers who who came to us and said. Uh, hey, I'm trying to do this thing. And we said, all right, we can we can probably make that happen. And that's that's sort of how a whole lot of our tools came about was that people came uh, who were using one of our tools and said, hey, I'm trying to do something similar, but in a different way. And uh, that's sort of helped us build a whole lot of new products. You guys have to know that every feature that's in our software has a name attached to it. Our story is so similar. That's amazing that every single thing that we do, there was somebody who came to us and said, hey, you know, you're doing this thing where you're reading text, but can you read text when we're zoomed in? Right. Well, sure. 
right? And so every single thing that we do, even still, is all driven direct from our user community. And I think that's what what separates successful companies from non-successful, if you really want to know. So that sort of leads me into a question I have, which is how do you keep that community focused, make sure that you're hearing all the feedback, make sure people feel like there is a place for them to give that feedback when they want to? Well, I can I can start with an answer for that. I mean, the biggest thing is taking time to listen to our customers. So we get a ton of support mail every day for our various products. And a lot of people will email and say, hey, uh, can you add X feature? And we'll say, well, you know, there's already a way to do that, but tell us more about what you're trying to do. Uh, because sometimes people want X, but what they really need is Y. And maybe, you know, doing it a little bit different will, differently will help them and will help other people. Uh, so I think the the biggest thing to me is is always listening to that feedback and making sure that you're listening to your customers and, and listening to what they need from you. I think Sean's about to tell you the same thing based on what he just said. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, number one is everything that comes into our help desk gets documented and, and is searchable, maintainable. Uh, one of the things we just recently did was linked our help desk directly to our project tracking system. We also opened up our channel partner portal to enable all of our channel partners to submit bugs and, and feature requests directly to the engineering team. I mean, it, it's about communication, right? And being able to open those lines of communication between all the people that have to make that happen. But finding the source of something that that actually will make a difference and, and has a real use case can be a, a lot more difficult than people realize. And I think Paul hit the nail on the head that people a lot of times will ask for, hey, you know, I would love to have a pair of glasses that every time I look around the room, it just reads me what it sees. Well, we tried that. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that drove people insane. <laughs> I can imagine it would. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. So it's interesting, right? You have to listen. And, and then the other thing I would say, especially for smaller or newer companies, is you have to iterate quickly through those things, right? You have to find the, the quickest way to try to implement whatever that feature request is to test it and see if it's an actual solution or is it a rabbit hole. And if it's a rabbit hole, get out. <laughs> if it's a solution, productionize it and, and get it to your product. But I mean, presumably you've both got limitations in terms of development resources. And so you have to prioritize that stuff. What what are some methods you use to make sure that you're not going to go down too many rabbit holes? Or if you do, you can get back out of them before you've lost too many resources and too much time. So we run a 60-day development cycle. Every 60 days, we launch a new version of the application. All those updates are always free. Um, but one of the things that we do is, is we operate on what's called Agile uh, project management methodology. So we do two-week sprints or what they're called. And in those sprints, we prioritize all of the work that's being done based on what our help desk manager tells us he's hearing from the field and based on what our, our sales team says that they hear from the field and what they're experiencing in demos and at trade shows and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's we don't have uh, necessarily that same development cycle, but it's definitely something where we're listening to what the feedback is and, and over time, deciding, hey, we've heard this 20 times. Uh, we should definitely look at that and, and see if it's worthwhile. Whereas sometimes we'll get a request and we'll uh, set a feature case for it in our project tracking and never hear about it again and say six months, a year, two years later, we'll look at it and say, well, that probably isn't that useful if nobody else has requested that. Uh, so yeah, you're, it's, it's absolutely true, especially at a small company that you have extremely limited resources. So I think part of the job is figuring out, hey, where should we devote those resources and, and what's going to be the most useful? And for us, a big part of that is just how much feedback we get and then you know what's easy to do and what's difficult to do. If we get uh, an equal amount of feedback for two different requests and one of them is a lot easier than the other one, well, the easier one's going to be the one that gets done because 
that's just going to save us time and give us more ability to do more things. I guess I have always had this theory as, as I'm, a, I'm a writer, I'm not a software maker, but I am married to one. And I've always had this theory that being a writer is something like being a developer in the sense that it's a creative pursuit and that you are uh, constrained by limitations of, of the form and, and various things like that. So I always I always make analogies between writing and developing software, which then leads me to my a next crackpot theory, which is that <laughs> managing people who make software or who do any sort of creative task is a challenge. And and requires uh, a fair bit of, of dexterity and, and flexibility. So I wondered if, if either of you, assuming that you subscribe to some or all of that crackpot theory, uh, what, what your thoughts are on, on magi- managing uh, creative folks who write software? Well, let's, uh, it's, it's an interesting theory. I don't know that... Uh, <laughs> you don't have no, to agree I, with I, it. That's okay. <laughs> well, right. It sounds like I'm about to disagree with it. No, I don't, I don't you know, I don't disagree with it from the, from the get-go, but for us, it's something where I think up front, we sort of look at, hey, what do we want to do and how do we want to shape this software for the next, let's say, six months? And what, what features have we gotten requests for that we're interested in doing and what are you interested in doing and, and what seems good to you? But at a certain point, it's just, you know, whether or not this is interesting or not, uh, this is something we feel needs to get done and needs to be part of the software, so let's do it. And at that point, it becomes less of a creative process and more of just, uh, you know, implementation, which is not necessarily as creative as as writing or something like that. So I I think there's something to that. I think there's definitely, uh, you know, you're shaping it and and you're sort of crafting it and there's some art to it, but there's also a whole lot of just science and implementation to it, I think. Well, and I would agree with that. That, but yo, Shelley, I gotta be on the other side of the fence. I actually think I, I agree more with you. Um, one of the interview questions I always ask potential developers is what they do in their off time, and what I'm looking for is a creative example, right? I find that developers who play music or do art or do some have some really good creative outlet tend to be much better developers. And the reason I think just Sean's crackpot theory <laughs> is that software development, in my experience, is always done in your head first before you ever write a line of code. You have to understand the problem statement, visualize the solution, and then implement that solution in the constraints of whatever programming language you're stuck in. Right. And that's actually what the, the skill of programming is, is being able to translate that solution into that particular syntax. But I agree with you that I, I think most developers are creative souls. At the same time, I think that software development and especially code development is quickly becoming a commodity. So while back in the dot com days, I was absolutely one of those diva developers that worked from home four days a week. And I worked from 10 o'clock at night till six in the morning if I wanted to. And nobody was allowed to call me and all that kind of jazz. I was totally that guy. <laughs> but I think that that's quickly going away and um, software development is becoming more of a, uh, um, you know, an industrial process, if you will, of taking those ideas, putting them into a project tracking system, a feature request system, data driven decision making processes, and then going through the implementation process. But the delicate balance that I find is I think our 60 day release cycle actually helps me balance it by giving my developers the ability to work on machine learning and some really advanced techniques for a full eight week period and then say, hey, you know what, guys, we got to implement on the Samsung. We've been looking on it at it for a couple of different cycles. Let's do it. And that one, you know, to use the word from the developers was absolute grunt work right. of just moving the code from one application to the other. Right. And, and they're just bored as can be. But as soon as that was done, we got back into machine learning stuff for another two months and keeps our keeps that cycle going. 
Sean, are there any particular challenges in building software for a population like blind and visually impaired folks that maybe you're maybe you have some developers who are those people, blind, visually impaired people, and maybe you have some that are not. But are there challenges for building software for people that are not necessarily the people who are writing it? Oh, absolutely. And the only way that we figured out how to solve it was I took an idea from Microsoft and Google called Eat Your Own Dog Food Week. And um, so in the middle of the night, I'll declare an Eat Your Own Dog Food Week. We found before that the teams were figuring out I was doing Eat Your Own Dog Food two weeks before the release date. (laughs) So suddenly everybody's travel stopped. Nobody would book any plane tickets anywhere. So now I do it completely at random, usually at three o'clock in the morning. And what happens is the entire company puts on nightshades for seven days. So everybody operates as a totally blind individual with their cyber eyes on. Every time they have to take their their nightshades off, they have to write up an incident report as to what they were trying to do, why CyberEyes failed them, and what we need to change in the software to be able to achieve those tasks in the future. So we test everything as our customers have to use the device in our daily life before it releases every single release cycle. So I guess... uh... As a software, as both software makers who have some dependencies, Paul with Apple and, and Mac OS, and Sean with the people who make the hardware that you work with, that mm-hmm. is going to pre- present some challenges to you. And I'm not even going to propose a crackpot theory. I'm just going to ask what what are those challenges when you're having to conform to whatever changes the hardware vendor has made it made or make choices about what hardware you're using, or in Paul, in your case, the the whatever Apple may choose to do with whatever macOS cat or uh, a land formation they're going to be uh, making their operating system based on. Yeah, I mean, for us, the biggest thing is the annual release cycle of, of macOS 10. Which is predictable, at least, right? It is, uh, at least in the past, uh, I'd have to look, but yeah, six, seven, eight years, there was a time when they had slowed it down a little bit and then they sped it back up to annual. But it's it's predictable, but it's predictable that I'm not going to have that good of a summer because they're going to announce the new OS at uh, WWDC and then I'm going to spend the next couple months uh, figuring out what we need to fix and how we're going to fix it. And then uh, in the fall, we'll release these updates that don't necessarily feel like we've accomplished a whole lot. We've just kept things moving and it feels like treading water. So I, I think to me, that's the biggest issue or sort of the biggest downside of, of depending on Apple as far as a platform vendor is that this platform updates and doesn't necessarily for us move forward a whole lot, but we need to stick with the latest version because that's where most of the users are. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's I, I think it's less of an issue for us than it might be for Sean dealing with multiple different hardware platforms and things like that. Oh, yeah. For us, I mean, one of the biggest problems is the the first version of smart glasses we released on, the V6 M100, run a version of Android that's KitKat. You know, this thing is seven years old, right. I think, six years old. <laughs> so even the way you access the camera is different now. So trying to find documentation for new developers and every summer we bring on interns to help us with some of the code cleanup and error handling and that kind of stuff. And just getting them able to work on that version of Android because it's so old tends to be a, a week or two week long learning curve in itself. So you're building for multiple Android versions, though, because the Gear VR is, what is that Marshmallow, or where are they at? Uh, Gear VR is whatever you're running on your phone. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It could be an S7, S8, S9. Right. (laughs) And then, uh, so the M100 is KitKat, the M300 is Marshmallow, and then in Samsung world, we're looking at at everything from Lollipop to to Oreo. And you're totally off Google Glass at this point? It's the V6 and the, the Gear VR? 
We are. The problems we had with Google Glass was, you know, just offline processing is absolutely necessary for what we do. And being able to, to snap a picture of a document and have it read back to you. What we ran into was here in Washington, D.C., we were trying to uh, have folks navigate the metro system and underground on the trains. They would try to read what the next train stop was and there is no connectivity. So we had to have offline OCR and Google Glass just didn't have enough hardware, right? The actual operating power to do that in less than 20 seconds or so. And by the time 20 seconds is up, you know, the door's already closed and you're off to the next station. So it just didn't work as a platform. So we talked about the software development side. What about the sort of after the sales side, the support side? Uh, what, how do you go? And Sean, I guess my question for you is very specific to the population that you're serving. You're going to have people with a great variety of not only visual acuities, but comfort navigating in the world and frankly, education level and, and all sorts of things. So I, I would imagine that for you and different and obviously you have different products to support. So I would imagine that for you, there are a multitude of support challenges. And I guess to, to focus the question a little bit more, what has been the biggest challenge that you've faced in trying to support customers? So the biggest challenge for us is getting people used to a, a new piece of hardware, right? So everybody knows their iPhone. In this market in particular, Apple has an 80% market share. If Apple had a pair of smart glasses in the world, you better believe CyberEyes would be on it but they don't, right? It doesn't exist. So we're on Android and we're just, it just is what it is. And that learning curve alone of taking somebody who's visually impaired, moving them from an iOS interface to an Android interface, and by the way, take away the touch screen because the smart glasses have three buttons that you use to control the thing. So now take somebody who's you know 85 plus, who's total blind, who's doing their initial setup by phone with somebody who on our end, by the way, who is also visually impaired. <laughs> our help desk is visually impaired wounded warriors. So we've got multiple people who are visually impaired in the chain here. And you're exactly right, working on different platforms with different technology abilities, different skill sets. Uh, so for us, the aftercare is extremely important. The way that we tackle that is with free training and free tech support for life. So we run training classes twice a day, every day that people are welcome to join as many times as they want. And then the, the help desk is open from eight to six. They can call for as much support as they need. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we have folks that we clock, you know, 10, 12 hours of support time with before they get comfortable with the device. And, and we're happy to do that. And then we have other folks that order the device and we never hear from them. They get, get going on their own with the user manual. So it, it's really quite the, the variation of support that we have to provide. But from a company perspective, you know, the infrastructure and the systems all have to be in place to provide that that solid support for the person that needs the the one-on-one -on -one for 12 hours if they need it. Sean, can I ask you a question? From what you just described, do you literally have, you found a way for the blind to lead the blind? Because that's what it sounds like. And that's awesome. It is. Uh, what we found actually was when we had sighted people doing the help desk, they didn't do as good of a job because they couldn't relate. They couldn't help people navigate the device the way that a visually impaired person navigates the device. Um, we found a, a lot of success by actually putting visually impaired folks in charge of that, that world for us. No, that's uh, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's, that's phenomenal. Yep. We see the same thing in sales, actually. So our, our channel partner network is mostly visually impaired entrepreneurs. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. So, so I guess that sounds like a, a very high touch level of support, though. Is that something that's sustainable over time? It is. The, in most companies, that would not be sustainable and scalable. For us, we made a, a strategic decision to partner with the Wounded Warrior Program and the National Industries for the Blind. Um, so Wounded Warrior Program gives us access to soldiers who are visually impaired getting out of the service in their last 12 months. They come work with us for a job training program, and we help them with job placement once they're done. 
and the Department of the Army helps take care of their, their costs while they're with us because technically they're still a soldier. Um, so we support our help desk. It's actually at zero cost to the company. And then in addition, the National Industries for the Blind is our fulfillment partner and, and an employment partner that they help us with um, you know, actually loading the software onto the glasses. They, we receive the glasses from New York to Industries for the Blind Milwaukee. They unpack them, load the software on them, test them, send them out. And all of that work is done by people who are visually impaired. So we created two blind labor jobs, which qualifies for, for all kinds of federal programs and other support. So, Paul, everybody who uses Audio Hijack and Airfoil and Fission and all your tools, it, they're, they're completely no need of support, right? Everybody just understands it completely, <laughs> right? Uh, so you don't even have us a help desk, right? <laughs> that's certainly the way we design it. Uh, it doesn't always work out as quite so well. But, yeah, it's, it, the, the challenges Sean's describing are, are much greater than what we wind up facing. But uh, the tools that we have are used, especially something like Audio Hijack or, or Loopback is one of our, our audio routing tools. Uh, they're used in fairly technical ways that people can uh, sort of, uh, let's see, how can I best describe this? Uh, you can do all sorts of things with them once you figure it out, and helping people figure it out is definitely something that our support team does. Uh, when we started the company, I handled pretty much everything but the actual application development. So I was doing the support for us for about four years uh, before I burned out on that and said, okay, we need to, we need to hire somebody, and we've had full-time support people ever since then. So we have... Currently, we have two different uh, people handling email. Uh, we do everything via email. So as Sean was describing earlier, that gets everything into uh, an issue management tracking tool. So we have uh, uh, the ability to see you know, how many people have run into an issue and how often we've gotten a feature request and that sort of thing. Um, so we, we certainly do not have the challenges that Sean described. But uh, as with any software, we have plenty of people that wind up needing help. And we actually do uh, pretty much, I, we don't advertise it too much, but it's pretty much free, free support for life uh, as far as whether you've purchased the product or even if you haven't, uh, because the software is not terribly useful long term unless you purchase it. So if you haven't bought the software yet, you can still email us and get support. And then hopefully that becomes a sales channel and people wind up buying the software. And then once people have the software and if they have an issue, they email us. Uh, an interesting thing, you know, Sean mentioned uh, some people need hours and hours of support and some people need almost no support. Uh, I think our numbers are skewed definitely towards most people not needing support, as you sort of joked about. But uh, it's it's definitely fortunate for us that uh, we don't have, you know, huge percentages of people needing support. But when they do, we're here to help them. I'm guessing that some of what you get, though, are highly specific things. Like, I'm trying to make a Skype call, I have this audio interface, and I'm trying to record to three different sources, or, you know, some sort of, the, the sort of thing that probably caused you to invent loopback in the first place, routing audio in all sorts of ways that are very individual to your, to your customer. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely lots of sort of what I refer to as high-end or very technical users who are doing something sort of one-off that we've maybe never seen before, and uh, we can figure out how to do it with them or for them, but it's not necessarily something that uh, is a feature of the product or is an advertised way of using the product. But I think a whole lot of our support winds up being uh, simpler things that when we get 10 or 20 or 50 reports of the same thing, we say, okay, let's figure out how to actually solve this problem instead of just putting a Band-Aid on it for 10 or 20 or 50 different people. Uh, and over time having that mindset of saying, you know what, we don't want to get these support emails. We want to actually fix the problem. And uh, if we're getting too many emails about the same thing, it means we haven't fixed the problem or it means we have a problem there that we should look at and, and try and design something better. Uh, having that mindset, I think, really helps improve the software over time. 
I guess one thing I wonder, and, and this question comes up because I've been around the Mac community a long time and, and know Paul's company and, and software. And I guess so what I wonder is what role a reputation me uh, plays in not only making sales but keeping happy customers because I feel like Rogamiba has a pretty good reputation, especially among the highly specific group of Mac users who are podcasters or who use who try to do fairly sophisticated audio tasks. But just you're 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 in that handful of small companies that have provided Mac software that I think people feel pretty good about. And and so I guess I wonder from both of you what, what you've thought about maintaining a reputation and and how that helps you, helps you actually be more successful in business. Well, for us, it's you, you mentioned early on that we sort of I, I mentioned that we fell into the audio space. But once we got there, we said, oh, people want more of more tools that do similar things or do related things. And so over a, a few years, when, sorry, when we started the company, we never said, let's be an audio software company. We said, hey, here's an audio tool. And people said, oh, that's great. I want to use that. But also I need to edit audio. And we said, OK, here's an editor. And uh, over time, we suddenly had a, a whole lineup of audio tools. And then hopefully we got that reputation that, hey, if you need to do something with audio on your Mac, uh, these are the people that can help you do it. Um, I think the other thing that we, we really focus on is, is that support and having top-notch support, uh, as, as Sean just described, having that support uh, really turns your customers into uh, almost uh, salespeople for you. Because uh, the podcasters that you mentioned, Shelley, when we started, we said, okay, here's how to record Skype. Uh, with with audio hijack and people said okay great and then you know forums all over the internet said hey I need to do this and people would say oh I'm using audio hijack to do that uh, here's how you do it and it was really just providing what people needed and as far as what Sean described you know if you're if you're helping someone especially you know their product is helping people Sean you should you should discuss this but your product is helping people uh, in their day to day lives you know tremendously and I think that's something where. Uh, those types of people are likely to have a community that they're going to say, hey, this is great. You guys should check it out, too. Oh, absolutely. And for us, you know, reputation is critical and key. Um, you know, we, you know, I'll share a story that I imagine if I was a marketing guy, I'd get in trouble. So, Shelly, this would be one of those honesty moments we talked about. Yay! Um, <laughs> yeah. So when we were a very young company, we had not even released to the public yet. I was on my way out to CES and got asked by a very prominent YouTuber in the blind community to stop by and deliver a product to him and let him do a video on it. I said, absolutely, man, that sounds great. I called our hardware partner. They gave me a pair of glasses for free. I dropped them off. I took off to CES. CES went great. I was crazy busy. I was gone for a month. Turns out in that month, this guy had had a problem with the hardware and it had nothing to do with our software. It was an issue with the camera and he had a horrible experience. I still admit to it. He had a horrible experience. It was absolutely our fault. And I know that that video to this day on YouTube still costs me sales. But luckily in the last couple of months or so, we delivered the latest and greatest version to him. He interacted with our new help desk, he interacted with our new sales process, and he's a much happier customer. Now he's an advocate for us and has turned things around, introduced us to a new channel partner in his home state and, and all kinds of things, right? But that took a year and four months to get him to review the product a second time for us. So reputation is just absolutely critical and key. Do you feel like the smallness of the the community of the visually impaired blind community or maybe, maybe you don't even feel like it's that that small but do you feel like that has a, a different impact like one youtuber can make that much of a difference in your product because of the nature of your customers oh absolutely uh well this is a, a 
close community. It's not a closed community, is what I always say. And um, so a lot of the followers that are on those types of channels aren't necessarily the end users, but they're the vocational rehabilitation counselors. They're the assistive technology assessment people. They're the people who, who make decisions as to which products are going to be used and which ones aren't. And for them to have seen a bad video followed up by a good video, you know, it, it's just it had to happen. I never know whether I should call a company like yours a small company or whether that's perceived as an insult or not. But but let's just say you're not a giant conglomerate by any means. But but <laughs> I guess for, for each of you, what would you like your company to be that it is not or in what in what ways would you like it to grow? I would like to make the list of one of the largest employers of visually impaired. I think that's something that would be amazing to be able to build a, a channel partner network of visually impaired entrepreneurs all over the country and develop a, the ability for people to build their own business and build a legacy that they can leave behind to whether their their family and friends are visually impaired or not. I think that's something that, that really mainstreams the visually impaired and really creates a, a level of independence and, and liberation that I don't think a lot of companies in this space are focused on. Sean, how many people do you have uh, working for the company, uh, including those that are not necessarily actually employed by CyberTimes? So at the About. moment, probably somewhere around 22, okay. 22, 24, somewhere in there. We're absolutely a small company and proud of it. Right? Yeah. Well, let's, let me ask you that question, absolutely. Paul. How many are you guys? Uh, we've got 11 full-time right now, uh, and that's actually the biggest we've ever been. So uh, we're definitely a small company, and that's – that's. Uh, so I guess if I – to, to answer your question, I, I think I would like to just continue doing what we're doing at, you know, larger scales. You know, we're helping uh, podcasters make their content. We're helping, uh, I, I, I look at it and say, you know, I'm employing 10 other people. And, and that's something that I'm pretty proud of is to be able to have a business that is generating revenue enough to have, create jobs for people. So if if we can get to, you know, more people, 15 people, 20 people, and if the products can reach, you know, another hundred thousand people or, you know, uh, more people, uh, that's, that's really all I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking to, I, I don't, I'm not going to complain if we become the next Microsoft or something like that. And, and I become a billionaire, but <laughs> that's certainly not the goal and not really anything that seems very likely at this point. Hey, the guys at real did pretty darn good. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and their software like wasn't that good. Yes, that, exactly. <laughs> sure. That sure, was where I was going with that. I, I suffered with real a while myself. So, <laughs> so the final segment of the parallel is always the famous one more thing question where I ask my guests a sometimes whimsical question and somewhat whimsical today. And I'll ask each of them and I'll also answer it myself. So Paul and Sean, if you were not doing what you're doing, making the software that you're making, uh, what product or service would you like to be selling? What would be your, your dream product? Sean? For me, it would be a tiny little hotel on a Caribbean beach somewhere with a fantastic bar that has great rum and great bourbon. Very nice. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'll come and visit. Absolutely. How about you, Paul? Right. <laughs> well, so the, I, I, I guess I, uh, I'm not as, uh, I don't have quite as, as fancy or as uh, enjoyable an answer as Sean did. Uh, I, I'm interested <laughs> in the uh, self-driving car space. And I think there's a tremendous amount of innovation going on there. And I think it's possibly something that really has the possibility of changing society and the world, uh, hopefully for the better. 
so that's if I had to, if my company went bust, or you know, if I had never started this company, I think that's what I'd really be focusing on right now. So mine is, uh, I, I like Sean's answer though. That uh, that also sounds pretty good, <laughs> right? I didn't say it was a nice hotel, <laughs> just some, some nice little hotel on a beach. There right? you go. <laughs> that's the way to go. Well, apparently Sean and I are going to be doing business together because mine is I would run a little craft distillery. So <laughs> oh, right next to the right next to the hotel. There exactly, and I'll uh, I'll there put the go. barrels in the self driving car and send them over to Sean's and yeah well no if, we get, if, if people come and take tours of your distillery uh, and they get a little sauced up then they can get in their self-driving car and it'll be fine precisely exactly. precisely exactly. We, we have a plan See, all tech works sounds all sounds good works. well I want to thank both of you for joining me on this episode of Parallel. But before we go, I want to give you the chance to plug anything you like. We've already talked a little bit about your your companies, but perhaps we've left something out or if there are other let's let's tell people where we can find you on the internet, Sean. Sure. So CyberTimes is www.cybertimes.com. So cybertimes.com. You can always call us, 202-827-6883 is our main number. And there's somebody there all day, every day. We're happy to talk to you about CyberEyes, how it could help you or one of your family members or friends be more independent in their life. Well, so our company name is Rogue Amoeba, which we found people have difficulty spelling. So not too long ago, I got the domain macaudio.com. So that's what I direct people to now when I'm doing a podcast or anything like this. So if you want to check out our, our audio tools for the Mac, go to macaudio.com. Sounds good. That is easier than rogue amoeba. I, I ever once is. in a while forget how to smell amoeba. I will admit it. But well, there's there's three different legitimate spellings, so it's it's kind of a terrible name. And Google really saved our butts on that one. <laughs> good to know. Well, and if you want to find this show, you can go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can subscribe there in your podcatcher of choice. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Parallel Pods. That's all one word. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Thank you again, Sean and Paul, for joining me for this episode of the show. And we'll see you again in two weeks with another one. Bye for now.